for Wednesday night Bible study. So good to be together. And we're in 2 Kings, we're in chapter 17. Last week we started, got the first four or five verses covered, and then we stopped. So we're, we're going to uh, try to get through chapter 17 tonight, and then we'll be back on track for chapter 18 next week. And uh, But we're going to finish up 17 this evening. Hope you've had a good day in the Lord, and uh, every day in the Lord is good. It should be. I was saddened to learn the news that Charles Stanley had passed away yesterday. And uh, yes, and 90 years old, and I think he remained the pastor there until 2020. And the last couple years, he's simply been working with In Touch Ministries, or is that the name of his yeah. ministry? Yeah, so, but I think right up to the end, uh, he was still ministering. And that's just wonderful. That I pray that I'll have that opportunity right up to the end. And uh, uh, I like the story of Jerry Falwell. Not that you ever want to say you like a story of someone passing, but uh, I like what happened. He, he uh, went into the office and uh, sat down, and uh, uh, about an hour later, his secretary went in, and he had his head on his desk, and he was gone. But he went with serving the Lord. And I love that, all the days of his life. And so uh, Charles Stanley did much the same. I forget how many years he pastored at First Baptist. It was over 50, I know that. And uh, that church started back in like the mid or, or maybe the, around the Reconstruction era. <laughs> uh, 1870 or something like that, or 1860, maybe even earlier. And uh, he was the longest uh, pastorate of all the pastors that had been there. Uh, over the life of that church. And uh, I, what I loved about Charles Stanley was his allegiance to the Word of God. He believed the Bible and always taught from the Bible. And uh, what a great mind and a great leader. And uh, so there's another one that we've lost, but there's others that God's raising up. Young men who love the Lord and who love His Word and are not afraid and not ashamed to preach the whole gospel. And uh, so, hey, uh, the, the dog barks, but the train rolls on. And uh, that's, that's our Lord. So tonight, let's start with prayer, and then we'll get right into our text here. Father, tonight, as we launch into your word, oh, what a joy it is, Lord, to open the Bible. And uh, David said, uh, as, as a psalmist, David said, as the deer pants for the water brook, my soul longs for you, O oh God. And Lord, I think that's the prayer of our heart. It's not just about studying the Bible for knowledge. It is studying the Bible that we might better know you and your ways and that it deepens and it, it strengthens our relationship to you. It strengthens our faith in you. And I pray, Lord, that tonight that would be the case. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, we, we covered last week the first four verses, and, uh, and in that, actually, we, I think we got almost to verse 6, we might even cover verse 6, but the, the gist of last week where the Lord just seemed to have us stay was this idea that the northern kingdom of Israel now is coming to an end in chapter 17, and uh, that's after 200 years being separated from the southern kingdom of Judah. And the interesting thing is the Lord is doing this. He's bringing an end to it through judgment because of the wickedness of the kings that served in the northern kingdom and because of the, the way the, the people had drifted away from God. They were following false gods. They were fearing man. They were not fearing the Lord. And the Lord had had enough. And one of the things I said last week that I think is so true and probably bears repeating is that God's judgment is often a long time in coming. You might sin today and not pay for it until several years down the road. Uh, that's, that's how it works. Now, I, I, when I say that, you are under the blood of Jesus, so there's no curse today on Christians. But as a people, like in America, like our nation, like our world, the sins of this nation, it might have been decades ago that we saw the first sin through a sexual revolution, uh, but that doesn't mean that God's not today bringing judgment 
for something that happened 50 years ago, 60, 70 years ago. So uh, that's what's happening here in this story. And again, this, just for repeat, let me say this as we begin the, the study tonight, that verses 7 through 23, uh, the writer of, of 2 Kings moves away from quoting his written sources, and he begins to give his own self-explanation for the captivity of the northern kingdom Israel. He even includes Judah, even though her captivity doesn't occur until 605 uh, B.C. Uh, to 586 B.C. at the hands of the Babylonians. But because her sins were the same kinds of sins as, Ju as the northern kingdom, he just lumps it all in. He's, he's basically saying God's fed up with Israel, period, whether you're talking northern or southern kingdom. Now, let me give you a brief, again, a brief overview of the next 16 verses, okay? And then we'll study the, the verses. And I shared these last week. I just want to repeat it real quick. Uh, what we're about to read is a full vindication of God against His people who have sinned against Him. Okay? Uh, they, have, they, they were privileged to come into the land, and God provided for them to cross over the Jordan and to come in and to literally take uh, conquer the nations that were in the land, and to the degree that they obeyed God, they prospered greatly. But in time, they began to turn away from God. We talked last week about how all it takes is just one generation. Like the first generation knew God. They saw Him knock down the walls of Jericho. Uh, then the next, then their children grow up and they hear about it. They didn't see it. They heard about it. Well, that's not the same. And if you only tell them once or twice about that story, many will forget it, as opposed to what it says in Deuteronomy. Write it on their foreheads. I mean, tell them constantly. And if you remember, God instructed Joshua as they crossed the Jordan River to take the rocks out of the river with them as a memorial so that you can show your children. See that, see that little rock right there? I pulled that out of the Jordan River when the waters were rushing above our heads, but God pulled the waters back. He let us cross over. That rock was in the bottom of that, that riverbed, and, and that's what our God did. They say that enough, the kids remember, and then the kids will pass it on. But they didn't say it enough. Why? Because now they were in the land, and they were actually wanting to keep other nations as slaves. They weren't taking them out the way God had ordered them to take them out, to kill them. And so they make them slaves, and then, of course, other nations would come. Before long, now they're marrying into these other nations, these pagan nations. Now they're mixing. The northern tribe, for the 200 years that it existed, the northern tribe of Israel was a mutt tribe, a bunch of mutts. They used to be Jewish. They used to be God's people, His chosen, holy, and dearly loved when they, crossed the, when they crossed over into the Promised Land. But they had taken on other people in their own families. Now, they were half Jew. And if you move all the way from this period of time, after the captivity of the northern kingdom and the captivity of Judah, and they return, that now you're talking Ezra and Nehemiah, if you want to study that, the return to Jerusalem. But even in the days of Jesus walking on this earth in the New Testament, the Jews hated the Samaritans. Remember now, it was in this period of time, the 200 years where the, divided, where the kingdom of Israel was divided in the Old Testament, that Samaria became the capital city of the northern kingdom. And so Samaria was where a lot of this intermarrying took place. By the way, that's not a sin today. People can intermarry from different races, different you know, parts of the earth. It's not an issue because God said we're no longer slave nor free, Jew nor you know, Greek, male nor female. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. 
But back then, he was specifically telling his people, do not intermarry. And the reason for it was because, and I've said this to you before, God knew that those other pagan nations would rub off on Israel more than Israel would rub off on them. And so you'd have a deluded Israel in their worship of God. And they would be deluded in the fact that they'd taken on husbands and wives from other places, and now they also have other gods that they worship. And so all of this has taken place. Well, in Jesus' day, they, the Jews hated the Samaritans. They literally spoke of them as dogs. Why? Because they were half-breeds. They were no longer fully Jewish. That's the fallout of something that happened all the way back in the Old Testament. Just to kind of give you a, a picture, the Jew would go out of his way if he was traveling north. He would go out of his way to stay away from uh, Samaria, where Jesus never did that. Jesus passed through Samaria. Why? Because Jesus was going to issue a new covenant where even Samaritans could be saved. But So this is the period of time when that northern kingdom has just completely gone crazy and fallen away from God. Uh, the idolatry is described in verses 7 through 12. We'll look at that. And that's in response to Israel's actions that the Lord begins to send prophets into Israel to try and call them back with a message of repentance, but they wouldn't listen. Verse 13, he talks about that message of repentance. And, and the people failed to respond to the prophet's messages. Why? Because they were already worshiping other gods. So it wasn't that they said, okay, forget the one true God. We won't worship him anymore. We're going to worship these false idols. They didn't say that. They actually said, we still worship God. We still fear the Lord. But they also feared other gods. You see what I'm saying? So now they're they're not fully given to God. And they're given to the sins that are given in the Ten Commandments. They're sinning. But they think they're okay with God because they still go to the high places and worship Him with sacrifices and follow the Jewish customs. God doesn't receive partial obedience. Partial obedience is disobedience to God. And that's why He's judging them. So that's what we see. Uh, and then uh, in verse 14, like their fathers, they did not have faith in the Lord. They, the, the lack of faith resulted in disobedience to the Lord's commandments uh, and the pursuit of idolatry in verses 15 through 17. And the idolatry of Israel and Judah, really the southern kingdom as well, brought forth the anger of the Lord, which resulted in their being exiled, both the northern and southern kingdoms. That's in verse 18. Okay, the great sin of both the northern and southern kingdom is this continual pattern of Jeroboam the first to worship God, but also add new gods. Remember when they built the two calves, and they literally the calves were not representing to them; it wasn't representing a different god. They made the calves to worship God, our God. God's like, don't ever have a graven image. That's sinful. Uh, that would be as bad as somebody in this room having a picture of Jesus hanging on the wall in their home and think somehow that the picture of Jesus is going to protect them. First of all, it ain't Jesus in the picture. <laughs> Nobody, nobody's ever seen Jesus. We don't have a so whatever picture it is, it's, it's an image. It's a made-up image. And God said, don't have any images. So you be the one to decide what you ought to do with that picture of Jesus. Uh, but it's certainly not going to protect you. Okay? So um, Jesus was not a handsome guy. He was not one that you would pick out of the crowd and say, man, I really want to get to know him. That guy oozes with woo, man. I mean, he's got charisma. That was not Jesus. There was nothing about him that drew people to him, that Isaiah said. So he was a common, ordinary guy. He probably 
had some physical features that were unbecoming, that people wouldn't want to be attracted to. That's who God sent the Son of God, who is God, to this earth to look like. An ordinary guy. Okay? Well, here we see them setting up all these images, doing their thing, and so ultimately it brings down a great judgment upon them, and the judgment is that they would become captive to the empires of the earth. First it was the Assyrian Empire, and they took out the northern kingdom, and then Babylonian Empire became the, the great empire, and they came and took out Judah. So, um, by the way, uh, Israel was far more wicked than Judah was. Now, if you're measuring sin, 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 right? But honestly, Israel was far worse, and their captivity was far worse. Their exile, the Assyrians were bad dudes. I told you last week they would put a ring in their nose or they would hook them in the chest and pull them. So that's how they would bring them back into the cities of their empire, showing the spoils of war. And that's how they treated them. And this is what God ordered up for the northern tribe. So when we see atrocities on the earth committed, I'm not saying everything committed is an act of God's judgment. I don't believe that. But I also don't think you can say from Scripture that God doesn't bring judgment and allow atrocity to occur as a judgment. I think it's, it's very likely that we've had several of those. Uh, in the, even in our lifetime, we've had some. So, I mean, I look, at, I look at the nation of Haiti and look at the constant barrage of, of not only a governmental uh, atrocity that's committed, but also uh, natural disasters that hit there. Look, they're just one nation in the Caribbean, but other Caribbean nations aren't hit like that. And if you know anything about Haiti, the, the religion is... I mean wicked voodoo and every other kind of thing you can imagine. And so I'm not saying I know that from Scripture because the Scripture doesn't address that, uh, that particular country, right? But we do have other nations that committed evil, and God did bring judgment. So uh, I think God also in our day loves it when we repent on an individual basis when you repent of sin, the Bible says that God is quick to forgive you. And, for, and repentance is crucial. It's crucial for salvation. It's crucial for sanctification, for Christians who already are saved, and you're trying to become conformed to the image of Jesus. When you fall short, confess it. Hate it. Hate the sin you committed. That's repentance. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. And it's good that we repent. And I think one of the things harming the gospel message today is when a church or a pastor or an evangelist will talk about how God loves people and how God wants you to uh, know Him and He uh, has good things in store for you. He wants to make your marriage better. He wants to give you stronger relationships with people. He's going to help you live and enjoy life more. So, so accept Him in your heart. And they never mention the most important point of the gospel, which is the first point, that in the beginning, God created and said, it is good. Everything I've made is good. And then man, who was told by God not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, chose to sin. And in that act of rebellion against God, cosmic treason, God had to cast man out of the Garden of Eden. And He secured the, the, the gateway into it with angels with swords of fire. 
because if man went back in in his state of sinfulness and ate of the tree of life, he would be eternally condemned. So God cast him out and God gave us himself as a payment for the sins that we committed, that Adam and Eve committed. That's the gospel. You are a sinner, and apart from God's gospel, Jesus dying for you, Jesus paying the price, becoming the substitute, the atonement for your sins, apart from that, you will die in your sins. You will face eternal judgment. But see, that part of the message, which is must be shared because knowing that, now when they say, but there's good news, God loves you and sent His Son to die for you. Wow! I go from this, this wretched sinner that has no hope of eternity with God, and now God gave me a gift of salvation? Seriously? Now I have something to rejoice over as I repent over my sinfulness and I believe in Jesus as the Son of God. That's the whole gospel. But oftentimes, I, I just responded to someone this week on Facebook who shared from a message of a local pastor, and he was sharing the excerpts, and he talked all about if you want a better life, if you want to have friends that you can trust, if you want, if you want, if you want, all these things that you are going to get, then why don't you receive Jesus, come to Jesus? And I just lovingly, lovingly, because I want to help him understand. I said, you know what's missing? You're giving them the outcome of a life with God. But you never shared their current condition so that they would need a change, that they would understand repentance. I go to the day of Pentecost when Peter stood up and he spoke to this large, huge crowd of people that could hear his voice. And he, if you know what he said, and by the way, that whole crowd was Jewish. And so he, as a Jew, spoke to Jews. And he basically called out the Jews and said, you're the ones that put Jesus on the cross. Jesus is the Son of God. And he died for you, but you put him on the cross out of your wicked hearts, and there's no hope for you in your state of wickedness. And it was so compelling that the Jews said, then what must we do to be saved? And what did he say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. You got to repent. You got to repent. And that's the one thing that Israel was unwilling to do. So what they would do, they would continue with God half-heartedly, but add other gods. They never repented of their sins. And to repent, again, I've said this many times, but I don't, I don't think I'll ever stop saying it because they say that it takes several times for us to really hear it, you know, and get it. It doesn't mean you're slow. I'm the same, I'm the same way. I think in, in, in marketing, and my good friend Greg King was a great marketing person. He had his own business. He said, Greg, don't ever apologize for redundant communication. It takes numerous times and saying it in different ways for people to finally get it. And I think that's true. So um, if I can say this again to you, what was I going to say? Good grief. Uh, my age is getting to me now. I just turned 65. Wow. 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 <laughs> but, but, but the reality is repentance is two things. First, and foremost, it is a change of mind. Repentance starts in the mind. Repentance is all of a sudden seeing your lifestyle differently. I used to think I was pretty cool hanging out with that crowd. But God has arrested me and he's revealed to me my sin life. Now, 
as I think about my life, it's not cool anymore. It's ugly. It breaks God's heart for me to conduct my, my life that way. See, I'm thinking differently. That's where repentance begins. I think differently. I start seeing things the way God sees things. You say, well, how do I know how God sees it? You study His Word. You know His Word. You repent. The second part to repentance, and it comes afterwards, is you change directions. The first one is about a changed mind. The second is about a change in your direction. I used to go this way, and now, 180. I go that way. I used to have this group as my friends, but now that I've repented, I'm going after some new friends. I'm in the church now. This is where God's placed me in His family. You see the difference? Okay, that's what Israel was not willing to do. If they had repented, they would have, they would have asked God to forgive them for the sins of idolatry, for the sins of intermarriage, for all the sins they had committed. And get this, God would have forgiven them. They would not have been hauled off into captivity. But all the way back in the beginning when God said, what I've created is good, He already knew that when He gave man responsibility of choice, man would not choose Him that Israel would not choose him. There's nothing that ever has been a surprise to God. At, at, at the same time that he sees Adam and Eve eating of that tree of knowledge of good and evil, at the same time he sees Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, hanging on a cross, paying the full price for their sins. At the same time, that he sees those two things, he sees the church raptured, caught up into heaven, and the church glorified, and the saints of the Old Testament glorified in heaven for all eternity. Now tell me that we don't have an awesome God. That is probably the only correct usage of the word awesome. To be in awe. Is there anything on this earth that you could be in awe over compared to your God? Absolutely not. Wow, I love that. So, uh, before Israel occupied the promised land uh, in the days of Joshua, the, the promised land was populated by degenerate, pagan, base-minded reprobate-minded people. Uh, and Israel was coming into the land because God said, that's my land, that's sovereign land, and I am ruler of it, and I want you to have it. You're my chosen people. So drive them out. And at times he even specifically said, kill them. Don't let them leave. Because God knew with foreknowledge knew they'd come back. So he was on top of it, and Israel began to loosen up the ranks, and they wouldn't do what God said. So they made their laws out of God's law and the laws of other people groups and other idols. So we come to verse 9, okay? <laughs> well, actually, verse 7. Let's look at verse 7. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he goes all the way back to when they were in bondage because he's talking to, them, to us about a current bondage that they're going to be in, in captivity. You came from bondage, and now you're going back to bondage. And in fact, you even went down to Egypt where the bondage was, and you tried to get them to help you instead of turning to the one true God who brought you out of that Egyptian bondage. Look at how just messed up. That's why I say they were... They were reprobate. They didn't understand the difference between good and evil. They couldn't distinguish any longer. And, and verse 8, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, 
and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. Verse 9, And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. So they had private sins. They had public sins where they'd go to these high places and offer sacrifices, and they had private sins. But it's, really what he's saying here is their judgment was impaired enough to think that they could sin secretly against God, and He wouldn't know it. How upside down do you have to be to think that way? You talk about reprobate. If you talk about a reprobate, you're talking about somebody who no longer has the power, the capacity to distinguish right from wrong. That's them. Look at the latter part of verse 9. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. Now, wait a minute. When they came into these pagan lands and drove people out, there were already high places in place from false idol worship of other nations, right? Remember that when they first came in? And for a season of time, God said, the high places can stay, and I will allow you to use those to worship me. Why? Because they didn't have a temple to go and worship God at. So until the temple was built, God allowed them to use these high places to make their animals, to still follow the law of Moses, the sacrificial laws, but do it at the high place. But that's not what this says. This says they built for themselves. They didn't just use those high places. And now, by the way, they have a temple in Jerusalem. But they've now gone and built their own high places. From watchtower to fortified city, they set up for themselves pillars and a shirim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. So they built these new places where they would also offer sacrifice to God and then also sacrifices to the false gods. So basically they put God on the same level as the other gods. They didn't just completely stop uh, worshiping God. They, they just, it was syncretistic. It was a soup that they created. They brought all these different religions together in one big soup. You've seen the stickers, coexist, the word coexist, an acronym. Well, that's not an acronym, but each letter is a different religion. That's exactly what God is judging Israel for. And people don't have the understanding to know the difference, and they're, they got it on their car. Crazy. And, and they made high places, and they, they offered things. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger, and they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. I mean, God told them not to do it, and they still did it. These were not the high places utilized by Israel for worshiping God. These were new places. And there came a time when God said, now, now tear down the high places, you have to go to the temple. And they said, mm, no, we're going to build more high places. <laughs> Verse 11, and they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. So again, the same sins that brought judgment upon the Canaanites also brought judgment upon the northern kingdom of Israel. They're no better than the people that God drove out. Verse 13, yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer. So the whole time for these 200 years that the northern kingdom existed, God is sending prophets and seers, those who, are, who believe in God, and God speaks through to warn them, to call them to repentance, to, to remind them of the law of God. And, and these seers would say, that the, the prophets would say, turn from evil, your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. 
keep the commandments. But they would not listen, but were stubborn. Do any of your Bibles, do any of you have the Bible that says they were stiff-necked? What, what version is that? New King James, yeah. I know the King James says stiff-necked. NIV says stiff-necked. Okay, yeah, yeah. So ESV takes a lot of those words and tries to bring more of a clarity with the modern English because nobody says stiff-necked anymore, right? But the word stubborn, every house in America understands what that means if you've raised kids, right? Okay. Uh, but they would not listen. They were stubborn. By the way, let me just say this. Um, when it says stiff-necked, it literally refers to the oxen that would stiffen its neck. It would raise its head. It would not allow itself to be put under the yoke, an oxen's yoke. It stiffened up. God describes His chosen, holy, dearly love like an oxen that's resisting the yoke. That's what it means, okay? As their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They were stiff-necked. They were stubborn. When they crossed the Egypt, or left Egypt, crossed the, the wilderness, 11 days is how long it takes to cross the wilderness to get to the promised land from Egypt. 11 days. They sent spies in, and only two of the spies said, let's do it. The other ten spies, we ain't going in there. The people there are huge. They're giants. We look like grasshoppers in their eyes. And yeah, the land flows with milk and honey. The grapes, the vines are so big, it takes several men to carry the vine. But we can't go in there. There's no way we can take those people. Stiff-necked, stubborn. Why? Because God told them to take the land. Moses had already told them God's going to provide. Did God not provide the exodus from Egypt? Did not God provide plagues? And finally, the death angel coming through and taking out those who didn't have the blood on the doorpost or the lintel? And they saw all that how God provided. They get to the edge and they're ready to go in and it, no, we can't do that. And the people listened to the 10 and not the two. Who were the two? Joshua and Caleb. And they listened to the 10. So guess what? What would have taken 11 days took 40 years. That's a pretty stubborn person. Now, while we're laughing at the Israelites, let's think about ourselves for a minute. How long did it take you to surrender to God? Or how long is it taking you, I'm saying present tense, still taking, for you to soften where the Lord can take you into certain things that He wants to talk to you about? I'll tell you, one of the stubborn things that I hear, the stiff-necked things I hear from people from time to time, especially from men, well, this is the way I was raised. My father was like this. I can't help it. My, I'm like my dad. God doesn't have the power to transform you. He's not wanting to remove all the traits and characteristics that are in you that reflect on your father, some of them are really good. But the bad ones, don't hide behind the bad ones. Let God do something new in you. We're stubborn. We're stubborn. I was stubborn Sunday morning because I put on that shirt and had it out, and my wife looked at it and goes, I think you should tuck that in. She wasn't mean. She didn't try to get on me. She said, I think you ought to tuck it in. And my first response, no, I'm not tucking that in. 
That's how I said it. No, I'm not tucking it in. She just walked away, didn't say anything else. And man, that's like heaping coals of fire on your head. Dad gummit, as Bobby Bowden would say. And so then I thought, all right, let me tuck it in while she's in the bathroom there. I'll come. I tuck it in. I walked around the corner. I said, all right, what do you think? She goes, that looks nice. I walked away, stubborn Greg, and said, well, that's not enough. I got to do something. I got to win. a. I, I need a victory here. She can't get all the victory. Went back in my closet, found that sport jacket, threw that thing on. I came back around. How does that look with my chest out? How does that look? She goes, it looks nice. I'm like, oh, yeah. Stubborn. Now, some of you men are laughing, but I guarantee you, you've had those same kind of, you know, experiences with your wife, too. Uh, that's who we are. That's the flesh. But this is, re- this is just, they saw, this is the first generation. They saw what God provided. They still wouldn't cross over, didn't have the faith to believe. Verse 15, they despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after the false idols and became false. Look at that now. This this is profound. They went after false idols and became false. They followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not be like them or do like them. So in love, God sends prophets to the northern and the southern kingdom. And the message of the prophet was a warning against the sins that corrupted God's people and separated them from him. They invited God's people with the theme, Turn from your evil ways. Repent. Come back to God. Why? Because God would forgive. God sent these messengers to Israel to spare them the judgment that would come if they didn't listen. But the people became more stubborn. That's what we just read. When, so God, in love, is calling them to repentance. They just, they just bowed up even more. They didn't humble up. They bowed up. So verse 15, they went after false idols and became false idols, or became false. The NIV translates this, they followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. The NASB has it this way, they followed vanity and became vain. In other words, they worshipped emptiness and became empty. They followed nothingness and became nothing. Do you get the drift here? You become like the idol that you worship. You'll never, your idol will never become more than you, and you were made in the image of God, which is the highest form of creation. Your idol, other than the one true God, if you have an idol, whatever it is, that can be an idol. That cannot replace me. What God made in me after His image, this was not made after His image. And if if I'm always about this, then I become like this. I've lowered the image of God down to this. You can never go up higher worshiping anything on this earth. Listen, children, if children become your God, God made you here, your kids are here. They're not God. And now you've lowered yourself down to worship something less than what God made you to be. And and so the point is, you be, all, the best you can get from a false idol is to become like the false idol. You become empty, you become nothing, you become vain, but you'll never be more than that. That's what they became. 
and they abandoned, verse 16, all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves. So they abandoned God and went after metal images of calves. Remember the... Remember the uh, Scott taught on this. I think he, he was uh, filling in one night, and he had the teaching uh, in, in Samuel where uh, there, David's... When was it? Anyway, David's bringing up the, the ark. He's recovering the ark, and uh, that's because he walked away from it for a season of time. But before that, the ark was stolen by another people. And those people took the ark thinking that's where the power of God is. Remember it was in the battle? There was a battle, and in the battle they stole it. And Israel lost the battle, and they lost the ark. And the ark was the greater loss. This other nation takes it. Who was it? The Philistines. And they take it and they put it in a temple where their God is worshipped. Dagon. And the next morning they come in, and Dagon, which is like the head of an animal or a fish or something, and the body of a man, Dagon is laying face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. They prop him back up. you got to help your God get up, because he's not able to get up on his own. They prop him up, and the next day they come in, and his head severed. He's laying there and he's busted out. He is, he's, all, he's a mess. You can't put anything up against the one true and living God and expect to get anything of value out of it. We really do need to check our hearts. This is an area where we can be really stubborn and literally be like the Israelites. We go with God so far but I'm not going beyond this. And God's like, am I your God or not? I need you to come all the way. I need you to worship me. I need you to obey me. Not partial obedience. Come all the way with me. And sometimes we can't let go of what has become a God to us. I don't think God's asking you to let go of everything. I think God gives you things because He loves you. But if you're unwilling to let it go, it's more than just something God's given you. It's become a God. That's a tough lesson, isn't it? And we need to repent and ask God's forgiveness. To know what is right and fail to do it, that's sin. If you don't know it's wrong, it's not a sin to you. It's like somebody who is pagan, you know, and then all of a sudden they get saved, truly saved. And, but they still walk around and they cuss every once in a while. And somebody says to them, you know the Bible talks about cursing and you really shouldn't do that. You really shouldn't take Jesus' name in vain. What's, isn't that what a lot of people do? Ah, oh, and they say his name, or Jesus. And they don't mean it because they're worshiping him. It's just a phrase they use for a cuss, for cussing. And that's what happens. We, we get locked into these certain things, and then God says, give that up. But see, until I know that it's a sin... I'm not guilty of anything. Once I know it's a sin, I'm guilty. That's why you're going to be held accountable by what you know. So if you're going through verse-by-verse -verse teaching for 10 years, you've learned a lot, and you're held accountable for everything you've, you've learned. Uh, believe me, I get it more than you get it, because the Bible says that those who teach are going to be held to a higher standard. So whatever I'm telling you, believe me, I'm not leaving myself out. I'm not just pointing the finger here. i got three pointing back at me. 
But this is important stuff, that we not become stubborn about certain things that we can't give up. God desires and deserves all of our attention, our full, complete surrender. And that doesn't mean you have to give everything up, but it does mean that you're willing to give it up if He asks you to. True? Amen? So, um, it says in verse 18, Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of, this, out of His sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Now there's the judgment. It's the end of the ten northern tribes in the north. When they were dispersed by the Assyrians, some assimilated into other countries, other cultures, and then they brought in from other cultures and, and countries that they had power over. They brought in those nations in hopes to somehow get allegiance from the remaining uh, Jews that were still in the northern kingdom. That's how Assyria could take over. Verse 19, Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. And when he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. And the people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. He did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day until the day that this man recorded uh, the kings. Now, it lasted longer than that. In the day of Jesus, walking this earth 2,000 years ago, uh, Samaria was still a bunch of half-breeds. So it's still to this day. They, they bore, in fact, the judgment. Listen, back in somebody who was who spent a lot of time in Israel told me this. They said, did you know that the, the, the nation or the people of Samaria is now a very small group of people? It's almost extinct. You know why? Inbred. They became inbred. So reprobate they couldn't even understand the danger of inbreeding. And they literally died out as a people. And that's in our day. Isn't that something? So something worth mentioning is that as far back as the days of Jeroboam, when, when there was a break from the southern kingdom of Judah, the legitimate priests that existed in the northern kingdom, when Jeroboam came and introduced all these things, there were priests who left and went to the southern kingdom, to Judah. They did not want to have anything to do with it. I love that. There were some in the north who said, all right, I've had enough. I'm getting out of here, and I'm going to the southern kingdom. And they did. So the southern kingdom of Judah contains some Israelites from the north, okay, from the ten tribes. Uh, you say, how do you know that? Second Chronicles tells us that. Now, Verse 24, and the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cuthah, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharvain, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel, and they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. That's what I was talking to you about. Verse 25, and at the beginning of their dwelling there, they did not fear the Lord. These other people coming in didn't fear the Lord at all. I mean, the ones that were there feared, but not fully. Therefore, the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. You talk about a heavy judgment. You're getting hauled off to another foreign place that you don't know anything, and you're hauled by hooks. And now those who remain, they bring all these other people in from other places, and they're so far from God, for God to get their attention, He had to literally send in lions to eat some of them. So the king of Assyria was told, The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the Lord, the God of the land. 
Therefore he has sent lions among them, and behold, they are killing them, because they do not know the law, the law of the God of the land. Isn't that interesting? So you got pagans describing to a pagan king about the one true living God and saying, this guy, this is his land. And he's sending lions in to eat everybody. You, we need to kind of figure out what he's all about. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 12. Write it down, Zechariah 2, 12. By the way, if you ever want, if you say, I'm an amillennialist, you don't want to read Zechariah because it doesn't bode well for amillennialism. And if you say, I don't have a clue what you're talking about, you're talking a foreign language, uh, look up amillennial. Millennial, put A in front of it and uh, look it up. It's a certain belief system of how things will play out in the end. I'm a premillennialist. Uh, some people are post-millennialists. Some are amillennialists. Amillennialism is very intriguing, and many believe that. In the church of God that I grew up in, they believe in amillennialism. They, 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 they interpret Daniel and uh, Revelation and other passages that talk about the end. They interpret those, Ezekiel, they interpret them as being symbolic, not, being to, not to be taken literally. Okay? You don't want to read Zechariah because he gives you literal. He says it's literal. This is what is going to happen. This is not, you can't, there's no way you can take Zechariah and turn it into a bunch of symbols and this and that and the other. But he said, Ze Zechariah 2.12, it says, tell us that the land of Israel is the holy land. That's what it tells us. God regards it as something special and will hold accountable those who live there and not fear Him. By the way, in Zechariah it says that there is coming a time in the future when Israel will return to God. Repentance will happen. I love that. So now think about the Muslims and the Palestinians, the, the Muslims that live in Jerusalem right now. You know, they have the Dome of the Rock. That's where they worship. And then you have the Israelites in Jerusalem as well, in the holy city. And the Muslims claim that it's our city. It's not your city. It's our city. They're going to be surprised when Jesus returns and go, comes against them for occupying His holy land. It's not their city. It belongs to the Jews. And that's going to happen. Verse 27, Then the king of Assyria commanded, Send there one of the priests whom we carried away from there, and let him go and dwell there and teach them the law of the God of the land. So they're going to find a priest from the northern kingdom that they've shipped off, bring him back, and let him teach the people living there now about the one true God. Okay, So one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. Now wait a second. He's a, he's a priest from the northern kingdom that only partially feared the Lord, and he's going to teach them. And that's why you look at the next verse. Look at the next verse, verse 29. But every nation still made gods with its, uh, of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made every nation in the cities in which they lived. They didn't change. And then it says the men of, and it says, the men of Babylon made Succoth-Banath, the men of, by the way, that means it's like a houses for uh, orgies. That's what their worship was all about. Houses, they called houses of worship, but they were places for orgies. The men of Cuth made Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashima. And the Avites made Nebaz and Tartak. And the Sephirvites burned their children in the fire to Adrimelech and Anemelech, the gods of Sepharvim. They also feared the Lord. On top of all that, all this worship, they also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places. God didn't appoint these priests. They did. Who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. They're not going to the temple to sacrifice. They're using the high places. So while there were elements of true faith in the land, at the same time, it is absolutely corrupt by the centuries of state-sponsored idolatry that reigned in Israel under these kings. 
Verse 33, so they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. So that describes the pagan peoples that the Assyrians brought in to populate the area, and they gave a measure of respect to the one true God. Why? Because he was sending lions to eat them. We've got to do something. But they also served their own gods. This, this accurately describes the pagan peoples who repopulated Israel. By the way, it's pagan people that are now populating America. Yeah, that, that's a newsflash, as if you didn't know. It's, it really is sad to read this and look at our nation and see how Americans have allowed God to become just another God. And they've taken on new gods. It's sad. It's sad. I, I don't want to go into politics, but I just want to say this. I do believe there's one party in America that is all out against God. They are, it's, wicked. it's become wicked. I'm not saying every person who belongs to that party is wicked. So don't, please don't read that. But as a general rule, that party stands for wickedness. They stand against the things that God has spoken in His Word. The other party they're, they're, more, they're more moral they're not more godly. They too have gods. One of them being America. And they'll use the name of the one true God and say that they're doing it because of Him. In God we trust. Really? Salvation is a whole different thing than being moral a lot of moral pagans in this country. That's why I'm not trying to say to you, I mean, well, well, what I am saying is, don't put your stock in a political party. I don't care what party you belong to. None of it lines up with God. Enough that you would make that. Don't let it become your God. If that's all you care about is turning on your news or your online program that tells you a view that you like, that's so far from what God has for you. You do know that the news agencies, the reason you come back is because they keep spewing anything that'll get a story, anything that'll, that'll get a rise. They're doing it for, they sensationalize. Now put that against what Jesus said. Don't worry about tomorrow. It has enough worries of its own. You can't be a Jesus follower and attach yourself, you know, stitch your ear and your eyeball to the TV screen to watch the news. I'm not saying you can't watch news. I'm just saying if that's where you find your hope by what they say, you're not following Jesus because that stuff's going to stir you up and you're going to worry about tomorrow. Am I right or wrong? Same with weather. I'm not saying ignore weather when we know a hurricane's coming. Tune in. But don't live on the TV for wherever the air. You do know they're sensationalizing. You got these guys who pick one spot in a wind tunnel between two buildings and they're standing there like this. This is, if they would step out away from the two buildings, probably half the wind. Don't be led into man's ridiculousness. Be careful. Worship the one true God. Live every day with Him being the answer for your issues, your problems.
It says, verse 35, the Lord made a covenant with them and commanded them, you shall not fear other gods or bow yourselves to them or serve them or sacrifice to them. But you shall, look at this now, you shall fear the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to him and to him you shall sacrifice. And the statutes and the ruler, rules of the law and the commandment that he wrote for you, you shall always be careful to do. You shall not fear other gods, and you shall not forget the covenant that I made with you. You shall not fear other gods, but you shall fear the Lord your God. He will deliver you out of the hand of all the enemies. However, they would not listen. They did according to their former manner. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise, and their children's children as their fathers did, so they do to this day when this was written. Well, I can tell you it's happening today too. Interesting chapter, isn't it? We only have a few more chapters really uh, left with Second Kings, probably, I don't know, six or seven, eight chapters left. And so we're coming towards the end. Again, I'm asking you to let me know if there's a particular book in the Bible that you'd like to see us study on Wednesday night. I'm open to suggestions. Um, I have a thought of where I'd like to go, but I, I, I'd also like to hear your thoughts. So feel free to uh, tell me or send me a t an email or send it to info at viralbiblefellowship.org. Say I'd like to suggest a Bible study for Wednesday night. And uh, we'll probably, when we finish, we'll probably, if you want to keep sending some questions in, we'll have another night where we just do the Q&A because that was... I, I felt like that was helpful to all of us. I, I certainly enjoyed hearing what the questions were and then getting a chance to study and respond to you. So we'll do that again too. Well, let's close our time in prayer. Father, tonight we do give you thanks that your word fits every culture, every season, every period of time in history. Men have never changed. Solomon said it best, there's nothing new under the sun. But what is also true is the name of our Lord stands forever. You have never changed. Your word has never changed. It's just as much truth today as it was when it was written. And we give you thanks for that. And we pray that, God, you will send us out of here safely, but that we will now uh, repent where we know we are each one individually guilty. We'll think differently, and then we'll turn and go a new direction. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless each of you.